Good afternoon and welcome to this archive edition of Midday. I'm Tom Hall. Today, we'll revisit conversations I had last September with two novelists who've written books about racial inequality, liberation, and integration. They are very different stories, but they are both insightful, provocative, and compelling. Naima Koster is the author of What's Mine and Yours. It was chosen as the 2022 One Maryland One Book Selection by Maryland Humanities. We'll talk with Naima a little later in the program. But we begin with Dr. Wendy Shia, who serves on the faculty of the University of Maryland School of Social Work and as the executive director of the Social Work Community Outreach Service. For years, she's done anti-racism work, and she's written numerous scholarly articles. Her first novel is set in Baltimore in the near future. It imagines a secret organization of black men and women who train and organize for armed resistance to white supremacy. It's part dystopian fiction and part ripped from the headlines, part Wakanda and part consent decree, part Black Panther movement and part Unite the Right. It's called The Black Cell, and it's been chosen as a finalist in the American Fiction Awards. Wendy Shia joined me on Zoom. Because our conversation was pre-recorded. we can't take any new calls or comments today. Wendy, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Tom. It's and good to con- be here. And congratulations on the book. This is a very compelling read. It's really, really uh, thought-provoking and uh, beautifully crafted. Um, tell us a little bit about the Black Cell and the Black Resistance Movement and what forms that resistance takes. Yes, absolutely. So in the book, the book is set in 2024, and it imagines um, a time where a white nationalist president is coming to power, which doesn't seem quite so out of the realm of possibilities. And in response, we really see in the country a rise of white nationalism. And so black people starting in Baltimore really have begun to come together to think about and to plan for how they will resist this rise of white nationalism, this movement to send black people and brown people um, back to chains or out of the country. And so it really is a story of what community looks like. It is a reimagination of what the Black Panthers used to do for Black communities that um, was eventually, you know, stopped. Um, And so it's really about building community and supporting each other. It's something I really believe we can do. You know, as I mentioned, it's it's part dystopian and also part ripped from the headlines. As you mentioned, it's set in 2024. That's just a couple of years away. Um, yeah. The rise of the alt, uh, which is uh, how it's called uh, in in the book, and and even called, uh, in, you know, in contemporary reality, <laughs> uh, <laughs> is something that you know it, it has been a. a a terrible, you know, blight on the the political landscape here in Baltimore. Um, there, there have been, in fact, uh, predictions now of you know an armed political racialized civil war. Um, do, do you uh, did did you start envisioning that uh, at any particular moment uh, in time? You know, in the in the last few years. Certainly. I have certainly asked the question about whether or not liberation can come without violence. I think um, to answer some of those questions, we really have to go back in history. And one of the reasons I think it is not such a far-fetched idea is that when, you know, the... the um, 
the white supremacist killings of black people starting in around 1919 and going through the Tulsa massacre, massacre those all came on the heels of the Spanish flu, which was a pandemic. Um, and it was just, it's an interesting idea that there are things, um, there are events that can really stimulate this kind of uh, white supremacy and this kind of racialized violence. So the question I have always asked is what will be the response of black communities if this really does happen? And so in some ways, it, it is a sort of thinking forward of what has happened in the past um, and just trying to figure out what this could look like in the future. What? I don't think it's so far-fetched. <laughs> oh, gosh, no, it's not in the least far-fetched. Um, it's scary, but yeah. it's not in the least far-fetched. But w when we use the term black liberation, um, mm. what does that mean? What are the, mm -hmm. the components of liberation? In the book, one of the characters says, we've got to stop begging them to see us. This mm -hmm. is not about hating white people. It's about loving ourselves. But but mm -hmm. what 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 it's a complex notion, mm -hmm. liberation. Mm -hmm. What does it mean to you and to the characters in the book? Sure. So I, I really believe that. So I'm an immigrant. I, I, I came to this country. Um, my family's Jamaican. Um, and we have m many of the same stories in, in the Caribbean and around the African diaspora. Um, but this idea of liberation is really about um, black people or any group of people, right? It, it doesn't just have to be black people. But in this case, black liberation is really about having the ability to be self-determined, to really make the, our lives what we want it to be, not to have to um, accept the dregs of what is given in this society, this idea that we have power and that if we can all recognize our power, it doesn't really matter whether you have you know, money or education, but we all do have power. And when we put that power together, we really can make things happen for ourselves. We really can be self-determined and figure out for ourselves as a people what needs to happen so that our children can grow healthy and strong and not have to make decisions um, that other groups of people don't have to make, that we have opportunities and that we can we can live our lives in freedom, right, without um, being, a, you know, at the bottom of, of all of the measures of well-being as Black people are currently. It really is about being free and being able to make our own decisions. The book is The Black Cell. The author is my guest, Wendy Shia. I'm Tom Hall. You're listening to an encore edition of Midday. Because our show was pre-recorded, we can't take any new calls or online comments. And Wendy, the, the notion of community is extraordinarily important in this book. Um, and and uh, the, 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 the fact that uh, Eurocentric white supremacist values are a barrier to black liberation because uh, those values are, in many instances, contrary to the values mm -hmm. uh, of Mother Africa, as it's as you mm -hmm. refer to it, um, and, and which valued community. You say at one point one of the mm -hmm. one of the characters says we've been uh, we've become like crabs in a bucket, even willing to step on each other on our way to mm -hmm. success. But our original Mother Africa values have been beaten out of us. Um, mm -hmm. uh, we're tired of living in white systems that say you are nothing. Talk about um, how how community and and the the values of community which come from African tradition uh, are in contrast to, to white values in that regard. 
Mm-hmm. You know, it's 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 interesting that, you know, um, in African cultures and throughout the diaspora, um, we came from from collectivist cultures where people had to work together and live together and share. And in fact, in many ways, Europeans were like that at one point. Um, but over time, um, European values have really stressed the importance of individualism and the ability to make your own way. And that, in fact, people really should be able to pull themselves up by their bootstraps which really doesn't make sense. And this idea that everybody should be able to make it. And if I worked really hard to make it, then you need to do the same thing. And if you haven't worked really hard, then it's if you haven't made it, it's because you haven't worked really hard. And we know that's not true. We know that's not true for a lot of people. We know a lot of people are working very hard, but they don't have the opportunities that other people have. And so how do we come together as community to make sure that that everybody eats, everybody has a good place to live, everybody has all their needs met. I really believe that that it is in our DNA as Black people. I actually think it's in European DNA, but it goes much farther back. Um, and I think that we we need to find that ability to come together and to really support each other. That's that's what I think about when I think about community, the, liberation community. Yeah, the members of the Black Cell uh, in the book uh, talk about community wealth building. Um, mm-hmm. There's a term uh, you use called money susu. Um, mm-hmm. And this reminds me of there are other communities here in Baltimore that we see uh, that happening. Mm-hmm. Some black communities in East Baltimore, I know, who are uh, working uh, for collective ownership of real estate yes. assets. Uh, I think of the Korean community uh, mm-hmm. who uh, help each other uh, when when folks come to Baltimore to begin businesses. Uh, talk about how Money Susu uh, operates. Yeah, so it's it's interesting. I I um, I'm a home homeowner because of money. So what happened is that my my family came here as immigrants. They were laborers. My father's an electrician. We had you know carpenters and plumbers. And what my family did was is is the Susu is this community wealth building where every you get a group of people together and everybody puts money into the pot. And you know if there are ten families and each person's putting fifty dollars, each family puts fifty dollars in a week, then you get a f- pot of five hundred dollars and and the pot goes around the circle and you can take your money you can do it go on vacation do whatever you want but when my family came here we didn't do that we did a money susu and we we kept the money the circle going for about a couple of years and they they really built up money and using that money they they bought two abandoned uh the, um, apartment buildings in Baltimore, in New York, and then everybody was out there on the weekends fixing it up, and they rented it, and they, and and that was sort of the beginning of some sort of of intergenerational wealth. My parents died before they actually ever saw any money from that. But when that when those apartment buildings were sold, I got my parents very very small portion of it, and that was a down payment for my house. My parents would never have been able to leave me any money, and so because of this community wealth building, I and my children are in a much better position than we were when we first came to this country. I think we can do more of that. Yeah. I mean, it just makes all the sense in the world. I mean, I suppose there are, you know, maybe some internet uh, analogies, you know, Kickstarter and that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. but it's different. It's different mm-hmm. when when a, a, a specific community of people gets together to help out other individuals, you know, with whom they uh, are related or they know each other or they, you know, they're working closely. I wonder 
also your decision to write a novel, which you've written really beautifully. I mean, I, a lot of people, you know, when they try their hand at novel writing, um, it, it just doesn't come out smoothly, <laughs> uh, it, <laughs> yes. even if it's a nice idea. But you're a really good writer. And Thank but it's you. interesting to me that because your work is a researcher. I mean, you're a Ph.D. Yeah. teaching at the School <laughs> of Social Work, etc. Why did you choose a novel to yeah. make these very important points about black liberation? Well, you know, the truth about academic writing is that it is not intended for everyone. It is a very, you know, I, I do it. it. It is important. It really helps us make big decisions about how our world should work. But we do know that only certain people and a certain sort of elite group of people get access to that writing, not only because of where it is placed, but also because of the language that's used. I wanted to write a book that was something that my mother, who had an eighth grade education, would be able to read and would enjoy, would understand. Because we're talking about racism here. We're not talking about, you know, um, some sort of, you know, sophisticated surgery. This is this is about racism. So this impacts every single person. So every single person needs to be able to have this conversation. I wanted to write a book that was accessible to your 18-year-old, to your 65-year-old, to your person with an eighth grade education. I deliberately wrote the book to be um, easy to read. At least I tried to make it easy to read specifically for that reason. Because if, because if we leave some people out of the conversation, then we don't have the benefit of the richness of a full community taking part in this. Well, it certainly is accessible, and it certainly is easy to read, and it's a page turner. I mean, you wanna you wanna know what happens. Uh, it's, uh, so if you're if you like those kinds of books, this one is for you. We have Adar on the line, and I believe it's Adar Ayira who uh, is a good friend of mine, a great friend of yours, and uh, I'm indebted to Adar for introducing this book and you to me. Adar, welcome to Midday with your friend Wendy Shia. Thank you. You also busted me. Um, <laughs> thank, thank you so much um, for taking my call. And I'm Tom. You know I listen every day. And um, Wendy, I'm, I'm such a fan of both of yours. Um, you all were just talking about the intergenerational connection. And one question that I had, Wendy, about the book is that um, I, I continue to hear this refrain of this isn't your granddaddy's revolution, this isn't your grandmother's movement, you know, all that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So reading this book and seeing the way that you have put forth front and center the role that every generation has in liberation. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. for me, in reading the book, it really came to a crux when it got to the section about the compound. And this place where, you, you know what I'm talking about? Where everybody. Yeah. The okay. farm. And so you talked about the, this physical facility that it stood the test of time. There was this source of physical protection and hope. And then in that same breath, you talked about elders who were the source of emotional protection and hope. Mm -hmm. Can you mm -hmm. say more about um, your understanding and why you put front and center the, the intergenerational role um, mm -hmm. of liberation. And thank you all so much. I'll listen offline. Thank you, Adar. Thanks, Adar. Well, that's, that's a, a complex question. But, um, yeah, so I, I think Adar's right that there is a role for every generation to play. And I think sometimes we are tempted as a society to think that all of our solutions will come from the very young. And so I think that it, th there are many solutions that will come from the very young. Um, they have energy and they have new ways of thinking and they're innovative. Um, but, we sh but we should never, 
ever forget for a moment our ancestors and what they walked through because those are the lessons that will help us in the future. And so it is really important. Liberation can't happen for any community, actually, not just the black community, if all uh, parts of the community are not involved. I really, um, when, when Adar talks about this farm, which is a place that the black cell kept that people could run to um, in times of, of intense persecution. Um, I thought a lot when I was writing this, I, you know, one of the, my, I like to say my spirit guides is Nanny of the Maroons. She's one of the Jamaican national heroes. And she was, um, she led the um, Maroons who were groups of runaway slaves. And they used to come down out of the mountains and 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 wage war on the British. They would burn the plantations, free the slaves, and the and they had a lot to do with the, the ending of, of enslavement in Jamaica. I th and so they would go back to their maroon villages, and the, the English didn't know where they were. And so I th I used that kind of as a, as fodder for this to help me really think about what kind of place could this be that's intergenerational where the young people can sit at the feet of the older people and learn and where people can be safe and so that's really all wrapped up in this idea of the farm and of course one of the, the most wonderful characters in this book I mean, to my reckoning is one called mother ramla um, yes. and she's 90 years old uh yes. and and uh, she's actually uh, in the very last scene in the book, if I recall correctly, and yes. and she's you know uh, an important character as well as these younger characters, Corey and uh, his uh, uh, girlfriend mm -hmm. Tasha. Um, mm -hmm. But you also write about uh, the interracial friendships that mm -hmm. you know several of your characters because there's first of all there's a lot of characters in this this yeah. is a huge dramatis personae which is really interesting and and as an author just in terms of craft it, it's tough to manage all of those people mm -hmm. um but um uh, there's a, a one of the characters an african-american woman uh who she and her family uh, get a house in a nice uh safe white neighborhood uh mm -hmm. and she says we thought we were safe because we had good incomes and a nice house but it was a false sense of safety. Um, right. One of the provocative notions that you force the reader to think about is, you know, is liberation completely dependent on separation? Uh, because mm -hmm. there's obviously so many people who for years have talked about uh, integration as the answer rather than separation. Um, mm -hmm. How do you how do you take that that part of the argument up? <laughs> That is a really complex argument. And I know that, you know, I have heard some older black people say that one of the worst things um, for black people in this country was integration. I've heard that many times and it does give you pause, doesn't it? It makes you think because this is what we're spending all our time and energy trying to figure out how we can all be in the same place together. But the truth is that very often we're all in the same place together, but we don't share power. And so just being there does not mean that we are truly integrated. I think we have to ask the question, um, is it possible for us to all live together? Because honestly, in order for black people, um, and, and I, I, I'm specifically talking about black people here, but, but lots of people of color, groups of people of color, in order for us to build power, it means white people will have to lose some of theirs. How is that gonna work? And why would um, white people give up power voluntarily. So it's, those are just interesting questions. I think I think those are questions that are worth asking. And when it comes to some things, uh, they're not a zero-sum game. 
but mm-hmm. but when it comes to power, perhaps that is a zero sum game. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's only mm-hmm. one mayor, there's only one governor, you know, exactly. there's only one exactly. president of a company, there's only one uh, of a lot of things. Um, and if that person is a person of color, that means a white person isn't going to hold that position. Um, but it's also you the the understanding of history, this notion of bakra that you write about, uh, mm-hmm. remembering history of the movement determines the future of the movement. Where do you see the future of, you know, in your book, it's the BRM, the Black Resistance Movement, uh, on the streets of our city and many others across the world. It's the Black Lives Matter. It's BLM. Um, Mm -hmm. Where do you see the future of the movement uh, going? Yeah, that is, you know, I've asked myself that question so many times. I really think it depends on so many things. It depends on whether um, um, black people, um, and, and of course, you know, black people, are, this not, we're not a monolith, right? So there are lots of different groups of people with different sets of values and different ways of thinking. But, but I do think that there is go- we are going to be called on to support each other. I really do believe that, you know, I don't know what 2024, the 2024 election will look like, but we definitely see a movement in this country. We definitely see a rise in white nationalism. We definitely see that, you know, when our, our le- previous president was elected, that it freed a lot of white people to say and do things they would not normally do. If you have seen some of the responses uh, from white people that I have gotten to this book, you would really, it would make it, it's very sobering, let me put it that way, about how people really think. And so I do think at some point, we may have to come to a point where we make a decision about how we how we fight, how we retreat, or how we just live with things the way they are. And, and I don't know what that decision will be. Of course, you're exactly right that, you know, uh, black people are not uh, a monolith Um, in the Baltimore cell in this in the cell uh, in this book. uh, And I think of folks uh, like Davon Love, who's working with uh, Mm -hmm. leaders of a beautiful struggle and other organizations Mm -hmm. like that here in town. Um, They talk about uh, taking care of ourselves, our own economy, Mm -hmm. our own education, our own security uh, Mm -hmm. and ending dependence on white society and white organizations um mm-hmm. but do you see uh the the uh, a consensus building uh that that we we do need these these uh exclusively black institutions to take care of people of color in in this city and elsewhere you know i i think there is a good chance that we need things like that i mean you know i work in the social service arena and i can tell you that it, it continues to be a space where where people of color get less and 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 are most impacted by the structural issues in our country and we are not actually cha- we're changing we're changing in small ways individual people, small groups, but large scale. If you look across what's happening for black people in this country, economically, things have not improved significantly for us in the last generation or the last couple of generations. It's been mostly symbolic. And so at some point, it it may be necessary for us to figure out how to take care of our own or else it may be that we begin to splinter even more than we already have in the sense that those who have are taking care of themselves and their families and those who don't will suffer. But at the end of the day, if some people are suffering, we're all suffering. In fact, if some people are suffering in this society, it doesn't matter what co- color you are, you, you are, you are going to be there's an opportunity cost because all of those people who could have been everything they wanted to be and could have contributed to this culture and this society don't have the opportunity. We all lose when that happens. So we may have to make some difficult decisions. 
I think that it's going to be very hard. And that's why this is a novel. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, it is going to be very hard. And uh, those kinds of provocative questions have to be asked and thought about and pondered. They absolutely do. And you do a beautiful job of presenting it. So, Wendy, congratulations and thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Wendy Shia. Her debut novel is called The Black Cell. It's been chosen as a finalist in the American Fiction Awards. We spoke in September. Coming up on this encore edition of Midday, Naima Koster. She's the author of the novel that was chosen as the 2022 One Maryland One Book Selection. It's called What's Mine and Yours, and we'll talk about it after a quick break. And as we go to break, here is some music by Wendy Shia and her sons, the artists Styler and Finescence. They recorded it in conjunction with the book. This is Any Means Necessary. Stay with us. It is our duty to fight for our freedom. It is our duty to win. We must love each other and support each other. We have nothing to lose but our chains. Fight the hand that feeds you and maim your oppressors. Every step we take must honor our ancestors. I was in a school when I had to learn this lesson. We couldn't get a job, so clocking with the Smith and Wesson. We are not worth less than those with privilege, but they're gonna feel threatened when it's the cause of congression. We're living in hell while we begging for a blessing. Getting on our knees in front of the devil won't get us to heaven. Every time we protest, we lose a life or two. With that burner on his belt, he wanted you to blow a fuse. 